Today's scripture is John 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. God of heaven and earth, do come to your word now uh, with reverence and humility that we might be instructed by it. We pray ultimately that by your spirit that we would behold you so that we can worship you well. Pray also for the children downstairs that they might behold you. They might see this Advent season uh, something of your goodness and your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, good morning. My name is John. For those of you that don't know me, part of the team here, uh, maybe you haven't picked up on it yet. All the references, all the lights, all the foliage, all of the songs, the blazer. Uh, it's Advent. Very exciting. Um, if you were here last week, you'll have heard George referencing the um, materials, the resources that we've got online. Uh, he encouraged us to look at. And so let me encourage you to go on the website. There's some resources to help you and your family navigate Advent together. Some really good kids resources there. Um, I think it's, it's really important for us as a community to be intentional in this season. And uh, uh, just because it's the third, it doesn't mean you can't start now. Uh, and I say this because I know that for many of us, we weren't here last week because uh, we were at the men's retreat, which was uh, really fun. Two pieces of feedback from me. First is, I was so honored, and I say this with all sincerity, so honored to be a part of that group. Uh, there is some real high caliber men in our church, and that's something to be celebrated and um, I'm, I was really excited to be a part of that group. The second piece of feedback is just a pastoral note. There was a number of men on the registration form that listed the fact that they did not snore. Uh, when in fact they did snore. 
and uh, you can come to the cross after the gathering <laughs> and confess your sins. He is just and faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Uh, next year, if you snore, I'm checking with your wives, your parents. I am checking uh, because I've just recovered. Um, no, uh, it's really good to be back with you. Uh, it's so good to be back with you. So good to start Advent. If you've heard me speak over the years at Advent, you'll know that me and my family, we're, we're big on Christmas. I love Christmas. I, I love almost everything about Christmas. Um, at our community group this last week, we were discussing uh, our traditions, uh, the, the traditions that we grew up with and the traditions that we're trying to build into our families now. And I was trying to glean some wisdom from our group because I would love to build a kind of a liturgy, a, a tradition of Advent to help uh, navigate it well and to help teach my kids what it all means and to help give them the same nostalgia that I had um, but what was interesting is the conversation quickly moved uh, to discussing how Christmas in Vancouver has become less and less Christmassy. In fact, it's harder and harder maybe to celebrate Christmas in the same way as we have previously done. Apparently in some schools, not all schools, but in some schools, they don't want kids to wear anything or to share anything uniquely Christmassy. Some workplaces are not allowed to have Christmas parties anymore, so they just rebrand it to like holiday season parties, which sounds awful, doesn't it? Um, and so the distinct and particular nature of Christmas is being flattened, isn't it, into some sort of innocuous, vague holiday season. So we say, happy holidays and not Merry Christmas. Sarah's parents were in town just last week and so we got the rare treat to go on walks around the neighborhood in the evening. Now, if you are a parent of young children and you don't have family in town, you know that's a big deal. We got to go out beyond seven. Um, and on one of those days, we were walking around our neighborhood and we were commenting on all of the different Christmas decorations. And we noticed these houses, and you know these houses because you can't miss these houses, the ones with the garish, life-sized, inflatable scenes with Santa hanging out of a window somewhere and reindeer and penguins and Paw Patrol for some reason. Uh, you know the thing. And we were reflecting on just how... Um, even though we love that stuff because we're pretty garish. Um, it's moving very much in the direction of happy holidays and not Merry Christmas, isn't it? This is a true story. Without a hint of sarcasm, Sarah turned to me and said, you know what we should do? We should buy a giant inflatable nativity scene and put it in our front yard. <laughs> this is going to be the Briars family attempt to push back the cultural tide of removing Jesus from Christmas. Now, that's not a joke. We're going to do this. And Sarah has been scouring the internet. And so if you know of one, you can email john at christcitychurch.ca. No. Uh, why am I saying all of this? Well, because I think the schools and the workplaces and the Christmas decorations and people's houses show us that Vancouver still wants the concepts of Christmas. They still want love and joy and peace and hope, all of that good stuff, but maybe not the particular claims of Christmas. You know what's interesting about the text that was just read? Um, I don't know if you noticed, but in John's Christmas story, there is no baby, no manger, 
no Mary, no Joseph, no star, no wise men, no angels, no shepherds. It's not even a sheep. In fact, all that John gives us is seemingly a collection of abstract concepts, light, life, word, flesh. And we might be tempted to think that this fourth gospel is the happy holiday version of the Christmas story. But what I want to show you today is that John is actually going to bridge these worlds. He's going to bridge these worlds. He's going to show us why Christmas is uniquely Christian. But he's also going to show us that this uniquely Christian story is good news for the whole world. It's good news for the whole of Vancouver. That these ideals that our city craves, that longs for, desires, can be found and only can be found in this uniquely Christian story. And so here's what I want to do today. I just want to walk through the Christmas story as told by John. And I want to draw on just two simple points. Two points I think are going to help us as we begin to navigate this Advent season. So two points, very simple. Point one, the inclusive claims of Christmas. Point two, the exclusive claims of Christmas. The inclusive claims of Christmas and the exclusive claims of Christmas. Okay, point one, the inclusive claims of Christmas. Um, you can tell a lot about a story by the way it begins, right? The, um, the author of a story is, is attempting in the opening lines of their story to, to set the scene, to help locate the audience in the world of the story. And I looked at a whole bunch of examples that were all really good from literature. It's very highbrow, but the most famous one and the one that makes my point the best is from Star Wars, which if you don't know... You can come to the cross at the end and we could know. <laughs> Star Wars begins a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The introduction, it locates us. It sets the scene. It indicates to us that this is fiction in some sense. But historical documents do this too, where they locate us. In fact, biblical authors do this too. In Luke's gospel, just one gospel before the one we've just read, for example, um, he is meticulously recording the events of Jesus' life. That, that's what he's doing. That's what he says that he is doing. And he is very intentional about locating his narrative in history, in a particular time, in a particular place. In fact, these are the texts that we're used to as we approach Advent. And so in Luke 1, it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. In Luke 2, it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. In Luke 3, it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Luke, we might say, frames his story in a particular history, in the particular history of the man Jesus Christ, because he is doing so intentionally so that we are reminded or that we might know that this isn't a fictional story, this is a historical story. This is something that has happened. Jesus is not a fictional character, he is a well-documented historical figure. But, but the Gospel of John is different, isn't it? How, how does the Gospel of John begin? It begins like this, in the beginning, 
was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, for some of us, as we hear this, we're going to immediately pick up on what John is referencing. For those of us who are maybe unfamiliar, John here is intentionally borrowing the opening words from the book of Genesis. And so if you've ever tried to read your Bible from front to back, these will be the first words that you read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John, in contrast to, say, Luke, rather than locating his story in the the days of Herod, is locating his story in the beginning. You see, for John, Christmas doesn't start 2,000 years ago in the Middle East somewhere. It begins before the beginning, right at the start, before the universe existed, before the creation event happened happens before history itself. Another way to say this is that John frames his story with the largest possible frame. So the story that he is telling is not one among others. It's not one among many. It is the story. The story in which all others find their reference and their meaning. We might say it like this, that for John, this is not a story, it is the story. And at the beginning of the story, John says, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, now for for those of you who are maybe new to church, um, you might be asking yourself, what or who is the Word. What or who is the Word? John says that he was both with God and he was God, which when you read it for the first time is extremely confusing. But it's important that we just spend a bit of time here, and I don't have time to unpack this in its entirety, but John here is speaking about a truth that is attested and affirmed and repeated over and over again throughout Scripture and has been affirmed by the church throughout history, and it's this, that there is one God. There is one God. But this one God exists eternally in three persons. We call this the Trinity. So God is God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so the word here, John identifies as God. But the word, who who we'll later see, is God the Son. And this is important that we we hear this, because it's going to be important later, that God the Son, the Word, is in intimate relationship with God as a son to a father. As a son to a father, he is God and he is with God. Now, I know this is a lot to take in on a Sunday morning. I'm not asking for forgiveness. But for now, it's important at this point that we see something. And it's this. The word is God. The word is God. That before we meet Jesus... Before we meet Jesus, the the well-documented historical figure whose teachings have, without question, transformed and revolutionized the world as we know it, 
He's turned the world upside down. This, this man, Jesus Christ, before we meet Jesus in a specific time and in a specific place, we meet the Word who is God, who existed before all time and place. Christ City Christmas begins with God. It begins with God. And John says about God that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made, which is an extremely awkward sentence in the English. Really well done on the reading. Without him was not anything made that was made. What John here is trying to capture is something of Genesis again. You can hear the echoes of Genesis that all of creation is made by the one creator, that there is nothing that has been made that was not made by him. All things, he says, were made through him. But John goes on because God didn't just create all the things back then and leave us to it. John says that he remains intimately involved in sustaining all things. In verse Four, he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The idea here is that his life is the source of all life. His life is the source of all life. The Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, when he's talking to the men of Athens, he says that in him we live and move and have our being. Christ City, I want us to think about that for a second. God isn't just the creator at the beginning. He is the sustainer today. He is the sustainer today, that not a single breath, even the one that you just took, that I just took, is taken without it being graciously given by God. All life and all of living for all people at all times across all creation finds its source and its sustenance in Him. The Apostle Paul, again, in his letters to the Colossians, tries to capture the totality of this. And he has a bit of a tendency of using the word all to make his point. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. We get it, Paul. Christ City, this is the God of the Christmas story. Now, why am I saying all of this? Well, because I think for, for some of us, as we approach this Advent season, we need to reframe Christmas. We need to have Christmas reframed for us. We need to recognize that Christmas isn't just for us. You see, if, if Christmas isn't just a story, but it is the story, then it's not just our story, it's also their story. It's everyone's story. I, I think that's part of the good news. Because if Christmas is making universal claims, which it is, if it's making universal claims, then it's making radically inclusive claims. You see, Christmas isn't just for you if you come from a particular culture or background or heritage. The message of Christmas is not just for you if you grew up in the church or you attend church regularly. Christmas isn't just for some of us. It's for all of us. It's for all of us. 
And as such, the message of Christmas, the message of love and the message of joy and of peace and of hope isn't just for some of us. It's for all of Vancouver. It's for all of Vancouver. That's why the church sings joy to the world. Joy to the world. Christmas is radically inclusive. It begins at the beginning. It is the story of all of us, and therefore it includes everyone. Second point today is the exclusive claims of Christmas. The exclusive claims of Christmas. Now, at this point, what's interesting is that for uh, John's audience, which is probably made up of a mixture of people of a Jewish background and people of a Greek background, and there's going to be a lot of agreement up until this point. People are going to be on board, like nodding their head. For the, for the Jewish audience, they're going to be, of course, this is exactly, this is from our book. Genesis 1.1, this is from our book. Of course, they were fine with a creator God who created and sustains all things by the power of his word. But even for the, the Greek audience, had various ways of conceiving of the world across their different philosophical traditions and schools, the ideas that are being proposed here by John would have fit actually quite well with their understanding of the world. In fact, the word word from the Greek word logos or logos, which is where we get the word logic, right? In, in, in the Greek understanding of it, in the Greek tradition, it is referring to the ordering principle of the universe. The ordering principle of the universe. And so on both religious and philosophical grounds, the idea of a divine creator, the idea of a primal cause, the idea of a single source of, of life and of being made complete sense to the understanding of the day. And guess what? It actually makes a lot of sense to Vancouver too, doesn't it? You know, we live in a place with a surprising openness to the concept of the universal divine. The universal divine. The other day I was talking to a guy called Farhang in the neighborhood uh, who was from the Baha'i Center just down the road. Uh, I don't know if you know it. Um, he came over and had a chat. It was, we had a really nice chat. He's a really sweet guy. We exchanged details and we, we're, we're going to meet for a coffee. Uh, and he shared with me a little bit about the Baha'i religion and what they understand and uh, apparently it overlaps and agrees with Christianity and with all of the other major religions in some ways. And I thought to myself, it's very similar actually to uh, what we might consider the, the broad understanding across Vancouver of spirituality. The idea here is that all of the positions are pointing towards the same thing or the same person, but just from different perspectives, which in a multicultural society is very attractive, isn't it? It's an attractive proposition. This inclusive understanding of God is very much the accepted dogma in the city that we live in. And hear me out here, John's gospel is going to affirm this to a point. He's going to say that all religions are pointing, all philosophical traditions are pointing, or at least attempting to point, towards one thing. They're attempting to point towards it. 
There's something within us all, within every human that is attempting to make our way to God. But Christ City Christmas doesn't just make inclusive claims. It makes the most outrageous and confrontational exclusive claims. This is the turning point in the text. This is where happy holidays becomes Merry Christmas. Where John, having just described God, the Word, the light, the life, in terms that are broad and universal and inclusive, and everyone is nodding their head and agreeing, and this is great. And then he goes on to say, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He says, the Word, who is just described as God, who was there at the beginning, who through Him everything was made, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ City, it's at this point that Christianity separates off from all other religious claims. It's at this point that the abstract concepts are given concrete definition where the universal ideas, the universal idea of God is spoken of with reference to the particular person of Jesus Christ. This is where Christmas becomes confrontational. This is where Christmas makes radically exclusive claims. But before anyone is maybe put off by this, I don't know where you've come from today. You're so welcome here, whoever you are. But before you're put off by this, I want to suggest today, and I want to propose to you today that the exclusive claims of Christmas are just as much a part of the good news as the inclusive claims. Let me explain what I mean by this. The question we need to ask is the why question. The why question. Why did the Word become flesh? Why did God become man? Why was Jesus born? And I think if we were to ask the gospel writer John why Jesus came to us, his answer might be something like this. That Jesus came in order that we might know God. Jesus came in order that we might know God. He says in verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. John says, Jesus came in order that we might know God. You know, one of the um, questions that humanity has faced throughout history is this. How can we know anything about God? How, how can we know anything about God? And, and broadly speaking, I'm going to oversimplify this because I'm a simple person. But broadly speaking, there have been two opposing answers to this question. How can we know anything about God? The, the first answer, I think, is captured well and famously by, by Plato. He's a Greek philosopher. I'm sure you've come across him at some point. Plato and his uh, story, his allegorical story of the cave. If you've ever taken a, philosophical, uh, a philosophy class... If you've ever kind of looked into philosophy, anyway, you've definitely come across Plato and you've most probably come across the cave. But for those of us that are unfamiliar, this is the story of the cave. And I'm going to simplify this for my purposes. So this is the story. Plato describes humanity 
as being like prisoners who are chained up in a dark cave. And all that they can see of the real world, the world outside of the cave, are shadows that are projected on the wall of the cave. And so in a sense, they don't see reality clearly. They only see the vague shadows that are dancing on the walls. And then one prisoner, he breaks free from his chains and he gets outside of the cave and he sees the world as it really is. He becomes enlightened. He sees the world as it really is. He no longer sees just mere shadows. He sees the form and the substance and then what this man does, he, he goes back into the cave to the, to the men and women who are chained up and, he, and he, he tries to describe the world outside to them. There's a lot more to it, but, but this is the point that I want to make. This is the process that is suggested in how we get to know God. That, that we live in ignorance and in darkness we see, only, we see reality only partially and, and in a distorted way, including the reality of who God is. And some of us break free from the chains and we make our way upwards and out of the cave to see reality as it is. And we come back and we try and tell others about it. You know what's interesting about the Christmas story is it proposes the exact opposite direction. It reverses, as it were, the process. And so it's not that people who live in darkness can make their way up to the light. It's that the true light has shone into the darkness. It's not us making our way up to God. It's him making his way down to us. When I was talking to Farhang, he said something interesting. We were talking about God. He, he mentioned God. And then in the same breath, he says this. But of course, we cannot really know God. I think he said it with all sincerity and all humility. And it seems reasonable and right, doesn't it, to, to have a sense of humility when we're talking about something as huge as the idea of the divine. How could I know anything about God? How could you know anything about God. It almost feels arrogant, doesn't it, to claim. I don't know if you felt like this when you're talking to other people. It feels arrogant to claim that you know about God, let alone know God personally. But if you think about it, the reason that feels arrogant is because we work with the paradigm of the cave story and not with the paradigm of the Christmas story. We work with the cave story and not with the Christmas story. You see, the cave story, to claim to know God is to claim to have ascended. To claim to know God is to claim to have gone upwards to achieve some form of enlightenment or spiritual insight that others have not achieved. But with the Christmas story, to claim to know God is not to claim to have ascended at all. It's to acknowledge that he has descended to us. It's not that we are enlightened, church. It's that he, the light, has shone into our darkness. 
Christ said, this is the exclusive claim of Christmas. Not that we know God or can know God through philosophical endeavor, through thinking our way to him, or through moral living, or even through religious activity, or anything that we have done or could do. It's that God has come to us himself. That he has humbled himself and come down to us. That light has shone into our darkness. My conversation with Farhang was going well until this point. Until I told him that Jesus makes an exclusive claim about himself. He says that he is not like every other religious person. Not like every other religious figure who claims to have in some way, through their own endeavor or through thinking their way there, ascended to God. He's not like those who claim to have discovered enlightenment, but he is God himself, the light itself, come down into our darkness. Later in John's gospel, you're going to see it over and over again. Jesus will say that he is God come to us. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Now, it's worth saying at this point that when I say that Jesus came in order that we might know God, it would be insufficient, I think, to conceive of this as a merely intellectual knowing, right? You see, when I say that Jesus came to us in order that we might know God, this isn't simply intellectual, it's actually relational. And, and the difference here, the distinction here is, is the difference between knowing some facts about a celebrity that you've searched on Wikipedia and knowing your spouse. Is a very different type of knowing. You know, you might know some facts about someone. You might know some facts about God, but there's a, there's a difference between that and knowing God. And Christ said, that is what is on offer at Christmas. That's what's on offer at Christmas. Not that we might know about God, but that we might know him personally. In fact, it's that you might know God as a son knows his father. As his son knows his father. Let me explain a little bit more about what I mean by this. See, what the Bible teaches is that humanity's problem is not simply ignorance of God. It's rebellion against God. You see, darkness in the Bible is not the same as in philosophy. Darkness is often in philosophy seen as ignorance. It's seen as ignorance that can be overcome through thinking. Whereas darkness in the Bible is a moral and relational category. It is a rejection of life that leads to death. It is a rejection of light that leads to darkness. It is a rejection of God that leads to death. That's why what the Bible calls sin is so destructive for us. It is intrinsically destructive. When we reject God, we are rejecting the one in whom is life, the one who upholds and sustains all things. And so our problem isn't intellectual, as if our greatest need is for more education or for enlightenment. Our problem is relational. What we need is not more knowledge and insight. What we need is reconciliation. 
We need to be reconciled to God. We need our relationship with God, who is life and light, to be restored. And so in verse 12, John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Children of God, born of God. This is why Jesus came. He came to take on all that we are so that we can gain all that he has. He comes to take on our brokenness so that we might receive his wholeness. He comes to empty himself so that we might receive his fullness. He comes to take on our sin so that we might receive his righteousness. We know, don't we, that Christmas always and inevitably points towards Easter where the baby in the manger becomes the man on the cross where he experiences fully and finally the consequences of sin in death and in darkness. He experiences the forsakenness of God so that we might not be forsaken by God. So that we might be reconciled to him. This is Christmas, that the Son of God became a man so that men and women could be children of God. That we might enjoy the relationship of a son to a father. That we might call God Father. That's the message of Christmas. And so we might ask, why so exclusive? Wouldn't it be easier in a place like Vancouver to embrace the broad, universal, inclusive claims of Christmas and just to abandon the narrow and the particular and the exclusive claims of Christmas? Can't we just say that Christmas is just a story among other stories? Can't we just say that Jesus is one way among other ways? Christ City, we cannot do that. We must not do that. Why? Because there simply is no other way. Jesus himself says it. What does he say later in John? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Apostle Peter says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ city, there is no other way. Why? Because we cannot save ourselves. We are like the prisoners in Plato's cave, in chains and darkness, but we cannot break the chains of our sin. We can't think our way out. We can't work our way out. We can't earn our way out. And no one else can do it for us. No prophet or politician or so-called saviour because they're all in chains too. Jesus claims to be the only way to God because only God could make the way. He claims to be the only way to the Father because he is in himself the only son of the Father. Christ said we cannot abandon the exclusive claims of Christmas even though it's confrontational, even though it feels awkward sometimes, even though it would be easier to live in this city Because salvation, while offered to everyone, and let me just reiterate, it is offered to everyone, whosoever, whosoever believes. 
Salvation, while offered to everyone, is only found in someone. The Word made flesh. The light of men. The Son of God. The baby in the manger. It's Jesus Christ. Would you stand as we respond?